Good morning, my name is Abigail Pecklow. Please join me in today's scripture from John 16, verses 16 through 33. Jesus went on to say, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take away that joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own town. And will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it is just a glorious time of year, isn't it? The sun is shining, it's 65 degrees, the days are getting warmer and longer, and uh, we're coming to my favorite holiday, uh, Easter, which is, of course, about uh, God bringing life from death and a new hope and new beginnings and uh, and this wonderful season of spring where uh, everything is just... uh, alive and green and warm, and it makes me think of the story of a guy who had this uh, beautiful sports car, a Ferrari, that he kept garaged all winter, and he would wait until a day like today to bring it out, 65 degrees, sunny, and he puts the top down, and he drives to a diner in town, and uh, grabs a nice little latte, and, and he's like taking up two spots and put cones around the car so nobody will, nobody will get close to it and mess with it, and he's sitting there just enjoying the, the beauty of everything around him. And he looks out in the parking lot and, and he sees this 
young guy come up on a little mini bike with a dirty t-shirt and ratty suspenders and torn jeans and, and he parks next to the guy's Ferrari and he starts looking at it and he's, he's getting closer and he reaches out and he starts touching the hood and he leaves a grease mark on the hood and the guy jumps up and he runs out just as this guy is starting to open the door to go look inside the car and he says, what are you doing? And he slams the door, jumps in the car and drives off in a huff, gets on the freeway 90 miles an hour and he's pulling away, he looks in his rearview mirror, and he sees his kid in the minibike behind him. So he's like, oh, this is ridiculous. He floors it, 120 miles an hour. The kid passes him. So now he's like, all right, I don't know what's going on, but I'm not standing for this. He puts it in fourth gear, floors it again, 140, takes off. I'll show that kid. He looks in his rearview mirror. The kid's still following him. He punches the accelerator again, 160 miles an hour. He's flying down the highway. He looks off to the side. The kid's passing him. He pushes the accelerator one last time and says, all right, this is it. I'm going to blow this kid away. He finally pulls past the kid, slams on his brakes. The kid runs into the back of his car. The guy hops out and says, what is it you want? And the kid says, I want to get my suspenders out of your door. Sometimes life can be beautiful and glorious and the sun is shining and and life is going exactly the way we want. Sometimes we can feel like we're getting whiplashed back and forth and we don't know what's going on. Everything seems like it's perfect and the way it should be and and then grease spots and and dirt and and mess and frustration and disappointment. And for some of you, it, it seems easy to be of good cheer, to take courage because... Maybe in your life, the sun's shining and everything's going well and winter's ending and it feels good to to be outside like many of us were probably yesterday and and there's a lot to rejoice in. Jesus enters Jerusalem to the cheers of this crowd and just like all this triumphant music we sang this morning, it's this big swell of encouragement and hope and joy and some of you are here today and you don't feel that way. It feels like there's dark clouds hanging over more than like sun shining through, like life is out of control, like you're getting whipped around and you had plans for how things were supposed to go, but life hasn't worked out that way. You were going to have a great day or a great week or, or a great year and, and, and it's just fallen apart. None of it's happened. It feels like maybe the, the things that are happening in your life make it hard for you to to take courage, to to have joy, to be of good cheer. Maybe there's been a turn for the worse in an important relationship. Maybe you've struggled to find meaningful employment. Everyone else seems to have life working for them, but it just doesn't seem to happen for you in in the way that you'd hope. Maybe you've been diagnosed with a disease. You've been struggling with a real physical problem. Maybe you're grieving the loss of a loved one that was really significant to you. That, and it doesn't seem like there's a lot to, to be of good cheer about, a lot to, to take hope in. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, his followers, before he's about to leave them. And we've been in this section starting really back in John 13, where Jesus is telling them about what's going to happen. And remember in John 14, Jesus is again warning them that he's going to go to the cross, he's going to leave them, he's going to to die for them. And he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. 
But then he goes on to tell them that, well, one of you is going to betray me and, and the, your leader that I've picked out, he's going to deny even knowing me and the rest of you are all going to run away and abandon me. And, 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 and the one who's telling them this Jesus is going to be arrested and tortured and crucified and they're going to be persecuted. It doesn't seem like on the surface there's a lot to take heart in, to be encouraged by and, and lots to be troubled over. But Jesus shows them in this section how how they can really take heart, how they can have encouragement and hope and joy that no one can take away, even in the middle of all of those realities. And and Jesus tells us this almost as a command to, to be of good courage, to rejoice. And then he tells us, he tells these followers and he tells us how that's going to happen, how we can be of good cheer, how we can take heart. Even when life is discouraging and, and difficult and, and uncertain. And as we look through this this morning, we're going to see how Jesus gives us a, a principle of life to live by and a power in life to call on and a position in life to hold on to. So Jesus gives us this principle of life to live by. Look again in John 16 where these disciples are talking among themselves. They're going back and forth. What is he What is he getting at? I don't understand. And in verse 20, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. You will have sorrow, but that very thing that causes sorrow will actually become the thing that brings you joy. The very thing that is causing pain and and grief right now, Jesus says, when God steps into the middle of it, it can be transformed into the thing that will bring joy. He doesn't say that that I'm going to take away the sorrow and replace it with a cause for joy. I'm not going to take away the the broken down old car and give you the Ferrari necessarily. I mean, that can happen. He's he's not saying that the outcome of your sorrow will be joy, like this, this sorrowful thing that you're going through will result in joy. He's saying the source, the cause of the sorrow will actually be transformed into joy. And he uses this illustration in verse 21, this picture of a a woman in childbirth. When she's giving birth, there's sorrow because the hour has come. There's pain. Now, some of you have been through that either personally or or maybe with your wife, that the child that is temporarily the cause of pain and sorrow, ultimately becomes the very source of joy. Now, I experienced this vicariously through uh, Amelia as we were expecting our first child. Uh, Those of you who are women know how this goes. You're anticipating the baby and you start feeling the little kicks and and there's, uh, you know, some of them even maybe become a cause of, you know, kind of joking and laughter. Oh, feel that one, feel that one. And, and, uh, about the time Jacqueline was due, I get woken up in the middle of the night with an elbow in the ribs, and uh, the contractions are coming, and, and now it's time to go to the hospital, and, uh, and now we're not laughing about the contractions. Uh, this is the real work now, right? Uh, we get to the hospital, Amelia's in the labor and delivery room, and, and uh, she's starting to feel the full force of those birth pains. And, and we've gone through, you know, the birth training together, and I'm supposed to be the coach, and I'm holding her hand, and I'm, I'm going to encourage her. You know, you can do this, honey. And, and she's gripping my hand like she's going to break it in half. <laughs> and, 
And I'm telling her, remember to breathe, remember to breathe. And she's looking at me like, you got me into this. <laughs> You're, I'm like, I'm, I'm scared seeing the look on her face. But then suddenly Jacqueline comes out. And, and they lay this child on Amelia's chest and she gets to hold this baby. And suddenly the child that had caused the pain and the sorrow now, now is transformed into a source of joy and, and gratitude. And, and Jesus is saying it's the same way for his followers. It's the same way for us. The very thing that causes pain and sorrow and grief in our life, Jesus is not saying that it's in itself good, but it can become. It can become the thing that God can turn into a source of joy and blessing. And the ultimate example is what Jesus himself is talking about here. He's going to the cross. That's going to be the cause of their sorrow and their grief. It's going to bring the disciples pain and, and fear and confusion temporarily. But the cross that Jesus dies on in humiliation and shame becomes the cross of glory and life and joy. That's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. It's the very thing that God uses to bring life to us. The, the instrument of what looks like defeat and sorrow and death becomes the place where God brings life, where, where God wins. God brings triumph out of the seeming tragedy of the cross. The cross isn't the end of the story. And the difficulty, the, the trial, the, the sorrow, the pain that you're going through, that's not the end of the story either, whatever it is. You remember Joseph in the Bible, his Brothers are jealous of him. They sell him into slavery in Egypt. He, he, he goes from even bad to worse. He ends up in prison. But finally, God takes him out of prison. He makes him prime minister over Egypt. And he's storing up food because of this famine that's coming. And, and then his brothers up in Canaan, the ones who had sold him into slavery, have to come down to Egypt to try and buy food. And they realize that the brother that they had sold into slavery and wanted to kill is now the prime minister who's in charge of distributing the food. He has the power of life and death over them. You remember what Jesus says to them as they're terrified, what Joseph says to them as they're terrified about this. God was with me, and you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. What, what you did as an act of evil and wrong, God superintended, God overruled your intentions, and even though what you did was actually Hurtful and painful and wrong, God meant it for good. God turned it for good. And that's the way God works in our lives too. See, Jesus walked on this earth and suffered for a little while, not just on the cross, but in his whole life. His, his whole life on earth was an experience of, of suffering and sorrow and, and grief to walk in this sinful, broken world with us. And, and yet Jesus was obedient to the Father all the way to the cross for the joy that was set before him. See that? Jesus endured the pain for an eternal joy that came out of the very place of pain. Paul says in Romans 8, I do not consider that our present sufferings are worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Mistakes, failure, losses, grief, pain, all of it can be the place that Jesus turns what seems like tragedy into triumph. 
I had a friend, another pastor in St. Louis. We were on staff at First Free together, Richard. He'd, he'd actually been in the banking industry for about 20 years before he went back to seminary and uh, completed his work and, uh, and entered into full-time vocational ministry. Richard was battling a fourth occurrence of cancer in uh, 2011. He was in and out of the hospital and doctor's offices and labs and and every one of them became a place for Richard to share the, the love and the hope and the joy of Christ. You know, oncology nurses have a tough job. And Richard was in the hospital encouraging them and praying for them and, and counseling them. Richard would go to, to meet with his doctors and encourage them and ask how we could be praying for them. And, and I heard all so many stories about how the medical staff that he interacted with were just amazed at the the peace and the joy and the hope that Richard had that led them to ask, how do you, how do, you do this? And, and he said he got all kinds of opportunities to tell people about the life and the hope and the joy of Christ in the middle of dying of cancer. Richard did die of cancer in 2011, but he got lots of chances through that cancer to point people to the love and the joy and the rescue and the salvation of Jesus. And, and cancer brought pain and suffering into Richard's life, but that actually ended up becoming the very thing that God used in Richard's life to bring joy to him and to others. Jesus understands. He, he knows. He knows what you're going through. He knows what's going to happen. And he knows how our hearts can be confused and discouraged in the middle of pain. What is it right now that's causing you pain and doubt and suffering? God is not asking you to say that that thing itself is good. But do you believe that God could take that very thing and turn it from a tragedy into triumph, to turn it from what looks like a place of death and suffering into a place of joy and life and hope. Because that's what Jesus is saying he's going to do with these disciples and what he wants us to experience. That's, that's a big step of faith, right? How does that happen? How, how do we experience that? Well, that's the second thing that Jesus wants us to know, that he's giving us not just a principle to live by, but a power to live in, too. A power to draw on. Look at how Jesus goes on in verse 23. Truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Ask in my name, Jesus says, and the Father will give it to you that your joy may be full. Don't you love what Jesus says the purpose of this prayer is? To expand, to enlarge, to fulfill our joy. As the Father delights to hear and answer what we ask him, the power that Jesus gives us to call on is the power of crying out to the Father in Jesus' name. The, the power of prayer is probably most misunderstood and underestimated resource that we have. If you're like, if you're like most people, it, it's sometimes the last thing we turn to, when really it should be the, the first thing that we turn to. 
Maybe we do that because we don't understand the power that Jesus is making available to us in prayer as we call out to the Father in him. Jesus has been talking to them about uh, serious and, and difficult things that are about to happen. And as you look back up in verses 17 and following, do you notice who are the disciples talking to about these confusing, disturbing things that are going to happen in their lives? They're talking to each other, right? Peter, what do you make of this? John, what do you, what do you think? What is he getting at? I, I don't understand. What's going on here? What's he saying? Jesus is standing right in front of them. But they're not going to him to ask him what he's talking about. They, they turn to each other. Well, what do you think I should do? And oh my gosh, I can't believe this. And this is just terrible. And it's the worst thing ever. And, and Jesus, they're not, they're not asking him. Fred Penny grew up on the eastern coast of Canada, and uh, in 1972, Fred's seventh grade French class uh, planned a class trip to go to some French-speaking islands off of Newfoundland, and uh, Fred was excited about the idea of going. Uh, he figured this would be uh, a lot of fun culturally, it would help him uh, grow in his understanding of French. But the trip was going to cost $50 for each student, and uh, Fred figured his parents couldn't afford it, and he didn't want to put them in the position of being embarrassed to say that they couldn't really pay for that, so he didn't, he didn't bother asking them. A couple of weeks later, Fred's sister came home from college, and uh, she was all excited to talk about this uh, trip that one of her classes was going to be taking, a 10-day cruise to the Mediterranean that was going to cost $1,000. And then she blurted out, Mom, can I go? And much to Fred's surprise, his mom and his dad said, well, you know, we're not really sure where we'll find the money, but, but we'll make it happen. God will provide. Sure, you can go. And, and Fred said, I really learned something from that experience. I sometimes fail to ask God for what's on my heart. Do I think that his resources are scarce? Do, does my failure to ask mean that my faith is small? Or maybe I'm assuming that God is unwilling to give what I ask. My sister and my parents taught me more about prayer that day than they will ever know. Jesus promises that he will always be with us. That, that's a present reality for everyone who knows Christ. And yet, at least I know I will often you know, turn to someone else and, and start asking, well, what do you think about this situation? What do you know about this? What are we going to do? And I start wringing my hands and I start asking other people, like, how are we going to solve this? Instead of first talking to my father about it. What are we going to do? How do we fix this? Where do we turn? Now, here's, here's a good question that we can be asking each other. Have you prayed about this? Have you talked to the Father about this thing that's, that's worrying you, that's troubling you, that's confusing you? Have you prayed about it? Well, you know, prayer sometimes ends up being the, the last thing that we do. We're upset, we're hurt, we're disappointed. We'll, we'll go find someone to vent to or to complain to or to dump our frustration on and Look, I'm, you understand, I'm certainly not saying don't talk to other friends, believers about it. That God puts us in community to, to do that for one another. But, but we often underestimate prayer because we'll go talk to others instead of having talked to our Father about it first and, and believing that He's with us and understands and wants to answer that prayer. We, we underestimate the power of prayer, but I think we also misunderstand 
prayer too. Jesus says, ask anything in my name and the Father will give it to you. Ask in my name. Max Lucado's daughter was about six years old, uh, he says, when uh, she had a conversation with him one time about his uh, calling. Uh, and she wasn't happy with his chosen profession, apparently, as a vocational pastor. In fact, she said she wanted him to leave the ministry. I like you being a preacher, she explained. I just wish you would sell snow cones. <laughs> and Lucado says, well, you know, it was an honest request from, from a simple heart. It made sense to her that the, the happiest people in the world would be people that would drive around getting to listen to music all day and handing out treats and making kids happy. I mean, what would be better than that, right? Max heard the request, but he obviously did not answer it. Why? Because, because he knew better. He knew what he was called to do. He knew that he was in the place that God needed him to be. The fact is, Lucado says, I knew more about life than she did. And it's the same with God, isn't it? God hears our requests. And, and it's hard for us sometimes to understand why God doesn't answer what seem to be good, honest, legitimate, reasonable, godly things to ask for. But if God says no, it's because he knows better. It's not because he doesn't care. It's not because he doesn't have the power to solve it. God knows more than we do. So to ask in Jesus' name doesn't just mean to say in Jesus' name, amen, at the end of our prayers. It's not that that's necessarily wrong. But when we're praying in Jesus' name, we're praying in the power of Jesus' name. We're praying also in conformity with his nature. To pray in Jesus' name means to pray in alignment with his will and his character. Imagine that my father is a banker in New York, and I take a trip to go there, and I get to the city, and I realize that I, I don't have any cash. So I go into the bank that my father runs, and I pull out my checkbook, and I make out a check for cash for $100, and I take it to the teller, and I give it to her. What is she going to say? Well, she's probably going to say, I can't cash this. It's an out-of-state check. And, and then I'll say, did you look at the name on the check? My dad signs your checks. And she'll probably, she might say something, oh, Mr. Schultz, I'm sorry, I, I didn't realize. And she'll pull out, you know, some nice crisp bills and, and offer me a cup of coffee and, you know, do you want a nice chair to sit in? And she's going to do that not because I have any authority with her, but because my father has authority. And because I am in the position of being in his son, he's given me authority by virtue of my relationship with him. And I invoke my Father's name because the request is in line with his will and his character and his purposes. Now, if I went in that exact same bank, my father's imaginary bank in New York with a black ski mask on and a gun, and I start shooting off rounds, and I threaten the teller, and I say, give me the money out of the till, because my father's the president of the bank. Now, she may give me the money, but she's also going to press a little button under the under the counter here and call the police. Why? Because, because I have a kind of authority, but it's not in conformity with my Father's will, character, and purposes. So if we're going to ask the right way, this is the important thing. Get to know Jesus. Get to know his character. Get to know his will. Get to know what he loves. Get to know what he is like. This Bible, this word tells us what God is like. 
what he loves, what he hates, what he values, how he can work even in the middle of suffering so that sometimes the no is not because it's a bad request, but because he has another purpose that he's working out in conformity with his larger will. Get to know this God. Study the character of God and study the inspired prayers in God's word. If you want to pray in line with Jesus' name and Jesus' will, look at how Jesus prays. Jesus doesn't pray for himself. He doesn't pray for his success, his prosperity, his wealth, his safety. We don't see prayers anywhere like that in the New Testament. We pray in authority in Jesus' name when we pray like Jesus prayed, that that the Father would be glorified in our lives regardless of what he chooses to bring, that that we give thanks and praise to him, that we pray for others, that, that we pray for their good, that we pray for the church, that, that we pray God would be glorified, that we pray for God's mercy and forgiveness for those who have wronged us, just like Jesus has done. Take the passage, maybe that you're studying, that you're praying through, and turn that into prayer. One of the most powerful things that we can do is to pray God's words back to him. So whatever you're studying or reading devotionally, Turn that into prayer. Take this passage and turn it into a prayer. Jesus, here's what you've said you will do. So do that. Accomplish that. Here's Go verse by verse and turn it into prayer to the Father in Jesus' name. Pray with authority in Jesus' name. And then thirdly, Jesus gives us a position to live from. Look in verse 29. Jesus' disciples say, now you're speaking plainly. Now we understand. Not using figurative speech. We know that you know all things. You don't need anyone to question you. That's why we believe you've come from God. Jesus said, now do you believe? Because, look, the hour's coming when you're going to be scattered. You're you're going to all abandon me. And I'm going to be alone, except I won't be alone because the Father is with me. And I'm telling you this, Jesus says, in verse 33. So that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. That's one of those you know, verses, that the first half, that nobody really wants to take as like their life verse. In this world you will have trouble. Right? That's a promise from Jesus. Jesus' disciples are saying, Okay, yeah, fine, we get it. Now we get it, Jesus. We understand you're talking plainly. And Jesus is saying, do you you really get it? Do you really understand? Let me tell you. When you understand what's going on, here's what's up next. You're all going to run away. You're all going to abandon me. I'm going to go to the cross alone, except for my father being with me. But I'm telling you this not to make you stress out, not to make you worried. I'm telling you this so that you would have peace in the middle of all of the pain and the suffering and the confusion and the persecution. I'm telling you this so that you would have peace because I have overcome the world, Jesus says. Listen, if if you don't get anything else this morning, get this. The, The most common description of Christians, followers of Jesus in the New Testament, is that we are in Christ. We are in Christ. That is our position. That Jesus is saying, I have overcome the world, and if you are in me, you are now in a position also 
of having overcome the world. That's why Jesus says in John 15, as Joey did a great job preaching a few weeks ago, abide in me, remain in me, stay connected to me, because apart from me, you will be overcome by the world. It's so important for us to to ask God to help us get this and and to live out of it. Because, yes, I mean, the, the New Testament talks about us being in a battle, we're in a fight, we're in a race, we're... We're pushing to the finish line. But, but here's the key thing. Yet we're in a spiritual battle, but we're not fighting in order to get the victory because Jesus has already won. There, the outcome is finished. It's, it's done on Calvary's cross. We are running a race that has already been won for us because of Jesus. And if we are in him, we already have the victory. Jesus never says we won't be tempted. Jesus says, never says we won't have trouble or trial or difficulty. Jesus never promised we won't have sorrow. In fact, he promises we'll have all of those things. But he also promises that we will not be overcome by them. And the reason that he can promise that is not because I'm all that or not because you have the resources, but because Jesus has overcome. And if we are in him, he has won the race. He has defeated the enemy. He has finished the battle. And, and if, we don't, if we don't get this, do you see what happens? If we don't understand that we're in him and that he's already overcome the world, we're going to be desperate to try and overcome, to try and find joy some way. We'll we'll go through hard times, we'll hit bottom, and and things will fall apart, and we'll say, man, you know, I can't wait to get out of this. Boy, I just, I can't wait to get on the other side. And then I can get to the top again, and, and you get to the top, you climb, and you climb, and you get to where things are good. And you're in a good place, and, and, you know, it's like Peter on the mountain of transfiguration. Let's just hang out here, Jesus. I don't want to go back down into all that mess, right? But but you know that another drop is coming. When we work through the week, oh my gosh, thank God Friday is here. TGIF. But then how do you enjoy the weekend? Because you know there's another Monday coming. Oh, I've got to to frantically squeeze all the peace and excitement and joy and and pleasure and rest I can out of this weekend. And then Monday comes and then it's back to the cycle of, Oh, I just got to grip my teeth so I can get to Friday again, right? You can't wait to get that, that new job or that new car or that person in your life or, or that trip or, or to get that raise. And You see, the cycle that Jesus is trying to break us out of is that we're looking for something that will insulate us from the, from the pain and the trial and the difficulty or, or at least, you know, dial it down a little bit. Jesus tells us plainly that's not his job. He's not going to do that. That's not what he's come to do. He's not come to insulate us from all the pain and the difficulty and the sorrow of life. And that tells us then a little bit about how we can pray in Jesus' name. Because if Jesus tells us that we're going to have difficulty, maybe that changes the way that we pray about the difficulty. It's not wrong to pray you know, deliver us from temptation and give us this day or daily bread and, and heal us and, and protect those we care for. But, but maybe we shouldn't be spending as much time trying to ask Jesus not to let us have difficulty when he's promised us that we're going to have it. 
maybe we should be praying about what God would be doing in us in the middle of the difficulty that he said we're going to have and how we can overcome in the middle of it. Because number two, he tells us how we can respond to those difficulties. He tells us how we take heart in the trouble of life because it's by recognizing that because of the position that I have in Christ, I have already overcome the world because I am in Jesus. Jesus has taken the worst that the world could throw at anyone, at anyone, and he has defeated it. He has overcome it. The world couldn't understand him. The leaders could not stop him. The cross could not crush him. The grave could not hold him. If you are in Christ, you have already won. We we are victors because we are in Christ. So what do we have to worry about? It doesn't mean that the things that we're going through don't matter or that they're unimportant, but Jesus is trying to change our perspective. And when we get this, then everything that Jesus is saying here makes sense. It means the pressure's off. Because look, I mean, you can look around and see so many people that we know who are running the race frantically. They're tired, they're worn out, they're discouraged because it seems like you can never get to the level you're trying to get to to have enough to get peace and to get joy. The finish line never gets any closer. You know, I'm fascinated by studies about uh, money and attitudes about money. And do you know how much money people need to be happy? People have done research about this. People who make $50,000 a year believe that if they had $70,000 a year, they'd be happy. People who make $75,000 a year believe if they made $90,000 a year, they'd be happy. People who make $100,000 a year believe if they made $125,000 a year, they'd be happy. The way that we overcome that is to not run the race in the first place and to rest in what Jesus has already done for us. To be in Christ is to recognize I don't have anything to prove. Jesus has done it all. It's about what Jesus has done, not what I'm doing. Jesus gives us a a principle of life to follow, a power in life to call on, and a position in life to live out of. And that's why we can take heart. That's why we can be of good cheer. Whatever is going on. Imagine that you're handed a script for your life, written out, uh, uh, everything from birth to death, and better yet, you're given an eraser and five minutes to edit out whatever you don't want. You read that you're going to have a learning disability in grade school, and and reading that comes easy for others is going to be a challenge for you. You'll get into high school, and you'll make a good circle of friends, but one of them is going to die of cancer. And after high school, you get into the college that you wanted to get into, but, but while you're there, you lose a friend in a car accident. And following that, you go through a difficult depression. You struggle with unemployment, but finally you get a really good job, and then you lose that job in an economic downturn. And, and you, marry, you fall in love, you marry someone, and, and you go through some really hard and lonely times, even in the middle of that. If you had the script of your life, and an eraser in five minutes to scratch out whatever you wanted, what would you do with it? Wouldn't you want to take out all the stuff that's, that's going to cause pain and sorrow and, and trouble and trial and discouragement? 
But if we could erase every negative, hard, painful things in our lives, would that really even be the right thing to do? Would that be the the good life that God intends for us? Would it cause you to grow into the best version of yourself that God intends you to be if you were able to take out every hard thing? God has the script written for our lives, and according to his own wisdom and goodness and perfect knowledge, he doesn't erase all the stress and all the pain and all the sorrow before it hits. He does take a lot of it away. Let's not, let's not overlook that either. We don't know all the things that God prevents us from experiencing as well. But God does take the disappointments and the failures and the sorrows and the periods of suffering to help us grow, to look more like the Christ whom we follow. God is not at work producing the circumstances that I want. God is at work in bad circumstances to produce the me that he wants. Is it possible? Is it possible that the the tragedy, the sorrow, the ups and downs that you've experienced, that, that that you have gone through, that you are going through, or that Jesus promises you will go through, that God could use those to bring about a triumph in your life for his glory and your joy out of that. You can be joyful today if you know that what looks like a tragedy, what what even is a tragedy, objectively, can be transformed into a source of joy and blessing for you and, and for the world around you. God wants you to have joy. That, that nothing can take away. That nothing can take away. And he gives, us, he gives us a position and a power and a, and a pointedness of it all, a, a priority, a principle that make it possible for us to take heart, to have joy that no one can take away if we are in Christ, because Christ has overcome the world. Let me pray for us. Father, we stand here on on holy ground, really. And uh, Father, I pray that you would take the words that we have heard And Lord, help, uh, help us to understand that you never speak to us to diminish the pain or the sorrow or the grief that we are going through. You, you don't downplay those things, but Lord, you, we thank you that you also speak into those things with us from a position of understanding and mercy and wisdom and power in order to help us see that you are greater that your purposes are greater and that you are doing something greater even in that the hard, broken, difficult things. Oh God, help us to believe that. God, as much as we praise and thank you for the, for the sunshine and, and the warmth and the growth and the green and the, the beautiful weather and all the 
material blessings that you pour into our lives. God, you are good. God, help us to know and believe that you are also good in the tragedies and in the sorrows. And that it's in those places that you bring triumph, that you bring hope and life and joy. Oh God, would you do that work in us and through us as we trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.